from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Before our worship begins, I'd like to share with all of our members and friends a little bit about our financial situation. Regrettably, our projection for year-end reveals a deficit of $420,000 on our $5.7 million budget. While we've worked diligently to manage our resources and expenses, giving in 2022 and 2023 have fallen below expectations. I assure you that our trustees, session, and financial team have thoroughly explored all options to mitigate this situation. If we are unable to bridge this financial gap, difficult decisions will need to be made. This could include budget cuts, which might impact various aspects of our ministry, including a potential reduction in personnel for the year 2024. However, we believe that as a community bound by faith and shared values, we have the ability to overcome this challenge. And so I call upon each member and friend of First Pres to consider how you might be able to contribute to our financial strength. If you've already given in 2023 and have the capacity to go the second mile, please give more. If you've not given in 2023, please give today. You can mail a check, give by credit card, uh, give by stock transfer, or use the QR code that will be on the screen in just a few moments. Our congregation has had a successful capital campaign, securing pledges of over $36 million. Our ministries with children and youth are bursting at the seams. Our worship attendance, both online and in person, are strong. Our community ministries continue to serve our most vulnerable neighbors and friends with compassion and great care. Our staff is strong, gifted, and committed to serving the mission of the church. My hope is that our giving will increase uh, to support the strength of our ministry in this season of our life together. We will continue to communicate openly about our financial progress and any developments that we have as we move forward. Please keep our congregation, our leaders, and our shared mission in your prayers. If you have any questions or concerns, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. And thank you for tuning in to this week's broadcast. We're we'll reading Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. I invite you to read along silently. Uh, in your pew Bibles, it's found on page 179 of the New Testament portion. From Paul's letter to the Galatians. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit. And what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Before I read our second text, let me say two things. Last week, uh, I started this mini-sermon series, just two weeks long, uh, by encouraging us to remember that we have to hold, as people of faith, uh, two aspects of God's character at the same time. Last week, we talked about God's imminence, this idea that, that matter matters to God. And we know that because God has entered into the world uh, in and as Jesus Christ. And after Jesus ascended to be with God for all eternity, Christ sends, or right before he did, he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of our bodies. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so God is imminent in and through God's body, Jesus' body, the church, you uh, and me. And so when someone says, well, where is God in the midst of this uh, situation, in the midst of this grief, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this struggle... We as the church say God is here living and moving and speaking and loving through the people who bear witness to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So God is imminent. God is close. Today, we're going to flip over the coin and we're going to think about another aspect of God's character, God's transcendence. God's transcendence. The second thing I want to say is, is that it is wonderful that we're commissioning uh, Stephen ministers, or Stephen leaders rather, on this day, uh, especially since the text that I've chosen long before we chose the date to do this uh, comes from Stephen himself, the one for whom this ministry uh, is named. Stephen was called in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts to be a leader in the caregiving ministry of the early church. Um, he catches the attention of those in power, and they put him on trial, and he has this long speech in chapter 7. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to read seven verses of it, and we're going to focus on one verse uh, in particular, and you'll figure that out, uh, which verse that is uh, as I read it. So listen to God's word to you and to me. This is what Stephen said. Our ancestors had the tent of testimony. In the wilderness, that's the place where the law resided, the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, as God directed when God spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. And it was there until the time of David, who found favor with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? 
Lord, break open this ancient word afresh to us this very day. Speak the word we need to hear. Challenge us in the way we need to be challenged. And show up in a way that changes us. Even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Last week I said embracing a theology of imminence will help us uh, address a prevailing ideological idea that's been around for many years called deism, this idea that God is not present, that God is absent from the world, when in fact we believe that God is present imminently and intimately in the world through the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through you and me, showing up, bearing witness to who Christ is by living the incarnational life the life that he lived, doing with our bodies what he did with his body, to love and to serve and to care and to proclaim. But today, as I said, we're going to look at the other side of that coin and talk about God's transcendence. And I especially want to frame it in light of another prevailing ideology in our time, the ideology of materialism. Um, back in the summer, I, I talked a little bit about materialism during our technology and theology uh, series. I want to reiterate something I said back then. When I talk about materialism, I'm not talking about the desire that people have to have more and more and more stuff. That's not what I'm talking about today. That's a whole nother sermon. Uh, what I'm talking about when I talk about materialism is philosophical materialism. It's the idea that the only reality in the universe is physical matter. That that's the only reality. In other words, this ideology holds that everything that exists, including mental phenomena, including our consciousness, can ultimately be explained in terms of physical components. Everything can be explained. Atoms, molecules, their interactions, the processes between them. All there is is the physical, and we can explain them. We can address them, we can identify them, we can understand them. So naturally, materialism rejects the uh, existence of a supernatural being, of a, of a God. What, what materialism also rejects is the idea of the spirit or the soul or, or sort of the spiritual life or the spiritual realm. There is no spiritual reality, says the materialist. It's all matter and all of it can be explained. Or can it? Can it? Can everything be explained? I want to tell you two stories that push against this default ideology of our day, uh, materialism where everything can be explained. And here's the first story. Several years ago, there was a man named Jim Loader. He and his uh, young family were on a road trip. And as they were traveling, Jim stopped his car to assist a woman who was struggling on the side of the road with a flat tire. He got beneath her car uh, to help uh, the process of changing out that tire when all of a sudden another automobile swerved off the road into the shoulder and hit the car that Jim was working on. The jack flew out into the street and the car came crashing down on Jim's chest, causing severe injuries including five broken ribs and a punctured lung. The next few moments would be critical for Jim's survival, but how in the world were they to get him out from under the car? 
Jim's wife, who was petite in stature, she was about five foot two, she ran to the back of the car in which Jim was trapped. She placed her hands on the car's bumper and she prayed out loud, in the name of Jesus Christ, give me the strength to lift this car. And this little five foot two woman lifted the car. And the other woman grabbed Jim by his ankles and pulled him out from under the car. In a state of shock, Jim was rushed to the hospital where doctors prepared for emergency surgery, though his chances of survival were uncertain. Then, in an absolute miraculous turn of events, Jim's gray skin transformed into a healthy pink hue. And the wounds, literally the wounds on his chest, appeared to miraculously heal. Jim opened his eyes and he looked up at his surgical team before they could even put oxygen on him. And he began to lead them in the singing of fairest Lord Jesus. What made this account even more extraordinary was that his healing while he was on that operating table was the precise moment when Jim's father-in-law, a pastor, had asked his congregation to begin praying. Now I know stories like these may prompt skepticism, especially if we don't know the one who is telling us the story. But the one in the story known as Jim, the person at the center of this narrative, was the late Professor James Loder, professor of practical theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. Dr. Loder had degrees from Harvard and Princeton. He was not a snake-handling or sawdust preacher. He was an academic. He was someone used to being able to explain things. And yet, in the shadow of this experience, he had no explanations other than a spiritual force operating counter to the laws of nature and its fixed structures, a force that quite literally saved his life. Here's the second story. Back in 2019, I participated in a, a trip to the Holy Land. I've shared about that trip in different contexts. So some of you may have heard this story before. Some of it may be new for you. I, I went on that trip uh, thinking of myself not as a spiritual pilgrim, as much as a sort of theologian, as a pastor, as, as someone who was interested in the history of the place. So I wasn't going for some spiritual uh, engagement. I was going more for theology. I was going more for, for history. Uh, I got to visit places like the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, the Wailing Wall, just to name a few. And I got to go to the Sea of Galilee. And I thought when I got to the Sea of Galilee, I was just going to see the place where all these incredible stories had happened. In fact, we were on a very particular beach by the Sea of Galilee. It's a beach that the gospel writer John wrote about 2,000 years ago. It's the beach where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to his disciples. It's that beach, you know this story, where, where, he, where he tells the disciples to cast their nets on the other side of the boat, and they do that, and they bring in this great haul of fish. It's the same beach where Jesus forgives Peter for betraying him three times on the night of his arrest. 
So I've got this story in mind. I watched some people walk into the Sea of Galilee, and I thought, well, that's neat. I think I'm going to do the same thing. And so I, I took off my sneaks. I took off my socks. I walked down the rocky beach, and I stepped into the Sea of Galilee. Just ankle deep, something came over me that's really hard to explain. I, I had this sense of the presence of God surrounding me. My body began to shake. It began to stir. My sight was filled with, with light, and I began to weep tears of, of immense joy. I had this sense of God's blessing. I had this sense of God's forgiveness. I had this sense that I was surrounded by the presence of the resurrected Christ. Believe me when I tell you Christ was there. I can't explain it. I can't articulate it better than I just did, but it was true. It was something I'll, I'll never forget. I encountered this transcendent God, something totally other, something totally different from everything I knew about the world, the laws of nature, and the way it all works. And so it's here, I want to return to something that I said last week. I, I think that as thinking Christians, as Christians living in the 21st century, we have to hold both God's imminence and transcendence in balance. We, we affirm that God is knowable, but we also say that God is mysterious and beyond our comprehension. We say that God took on flesh and dwelt among us, but we also say that God is outside of matter. God is not dependent on matter. God surpasses the, the limits of human understanding. God exists outside the laws of nature. God outstrips our ability to talk about God or to constrain God or to domesticate God or to explain God away. God does enter into the human predicament in and as the person of Jesus Christ. God is still with us and for us in the Holy Spirit, living and moving inside of our bodies for the sake of love. But God is also beyond all these things. That's what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7. God does not live in a home made by human hands. See, friends, we can't make a home for God in anything we create. That includes our politics. That includes our theology. That includes this magnificent sanctuary. It includes our social media posts. It includes our culture. Nothing can contain the uncontainable God. Now, I have a hunch that, that some of you, within the sound of my voice, have had an experience with the transcendent God that defies explanation. I have a hunch that some of you have had an experience like that. I also have a hunch that some of you would be hard-pressed to name an experience like that. Some of you don't think you've ever had something like that, and I just want to say that's okay. But I do think it brings up a, a question, should we expect encounters with the transcendent God? Because we should expect that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We should expect to uh, have that spirit move and transform us in such a way that we use our bodies the way Christ used his. But should we expect the miracle? That's what I'm asking. Should we expect the transcendent experience that defies explanation? I'd like to suggest to you this morning that we shouldn't expect miracles. I want to say that we shouldn't expect miracles. But we shouldn't be surprised when miracles occur. We shouldn't be surprised when miracles occur. 
We shouldn't be surprised when the transcendent God reveals God's self in a supernatural way. Allow me to illustrate the point. When Johnny was still in high school, our our junior in college, he's 21 now, uh, his interest and his talent for the piano continued to grow. He played a few preludes right here from this beautiful instrument. Uh, He played recitals, and people in the congregation got a chance to hear him play, got to experience his gifts. One day, Johnny got a call from one of the church members, a longtime church member, who had heard him play on multiple occasions. He and his spouse are incredible Christians. They're incredibly generous. So the gentleman gets Johnny on the phone, and he says, Johnny, we're downsizing, and uh, our new place doesn't have room for my baby grand piano and I'd like to give it to you. I'd like to give it to you. Now, this piano is a Petrov. It's from the Czech Republic. It's an incredible instrument of great, great value, a value that Johnny wouldn't be able to afford for a very, very long time. But, you know, Johnny never expected a gift like that. He never expected a gift like that. But here's the thing. He wasn't surprised when this couple offered it to him. Why? Because he knew their generosity. He knew them. He knew that they were good. He knew that they were givers. He didn't expect a a musical miracle. He didn't expect a piano, but he wasn't surprised by the gift because he knows how generous this couple is. I think that's how we should open ourselves up to the transcendent God. We don't expect the unexpected. We don't expect miracles, but, and this is an important but, when miracles happen, we're not surprised because the transcendent God is a good and generous God, and we are grateful, and we offer our praise and our thanks. We acknowledge that only God is God. And as I come to the end of this reflection today, let me set it up by saying this next bit is all about walking the road to spiritual maturation, to Christian formation, to Christian maturity. God is God in the miracle, but God is still God even when there are no miracles. Even when the questions don't get answered, even when the light goes out, even when we draw our last breath, God is God. So I want to close with one brief Story. It's a story from the book of Daniel. It's the third chapter, to be precise. It's a story that many, many of you learned in Sunday school. It's sort of a, a slow pitch right down the middle. Uh, easy for second grade Sunday school teachers to hit. It's the story that takes place during the Babylonian exile, a time in Jewish history when the Israelites living in the southern kingdom known as Judea were deported and exiled from their country. In ancient Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar erected a towering golden statue and commanded that everyone in his kingdom must bow down and worship it, including the exiled Jews. You know this story, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three friends who were Jewish captives refused to worship the statue because of their steadfast faith in God. Word of their refusal got back to King Nebuchadnezzar, and in anger and fury, the king gave them an ultimatum, either bow down to the statue or be thrown into the fiery furnace. All right, you went to Sunday school. The three men remained steadfast in their faith, says the author, declaring that God would deliver them. But then they say this, 
I think this is the road to spiritual maturity, to Christian maturity. They said, but even if God didn't perform a miracle, they still wouldn't worship the golden image. The story reaches its pinnacle with the three men being thrown into the fiery furnace. They were not consumed by the flames as another, maybe Christ himself, stood with them. They were saved. The transcendent God intervened in an inexplicable and powerful way. Even so, we know that sometimes God does not intervene. Sometimes the fire simply burns. Sometimes the car cannot be lifted. Sometimes you step in the water and nothing happens. Sometimes the bad guys win. Sometimes the miracle does not come. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that. God would not have to prove God's transcendent power in order for them to trust and believe that God is still God. And the question is, do we? And that's a hard question when the miracle doesn't come. Do we still believe that God is God? Paul said in Romans 8, If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to God when the miracles come and when they don't. God is God, imminent and transcendent, and we belong to this God. And that gives us hope, comfort, and peace. Amen.